Hello, my name is Andrew Gary, and welcome to Seismic Sound Off in depth conversations in applied geophysics. How can couples best navigate dual careers? How do you balance work life throughout a career? How can dual career couples benefit companies? In this episode, I speak with author Eve Sprunt to answer these questions, plus discuss how management and individuals alike can truly activate the power of dual career couples. This is a wide ranging conversation that touches on career development, workplace bullying, how professional societies can propel your career in downturns, and much more. This conversation is based on Eve's first book, A Guide for Dual Career Couples. Eve was the first woman to receive a doctoral degree from Stanford University in Geophysics in 1977. She spent 35 years in the petroleum industry and was the 2006 president of the Society of Petroleum Engineers, as well as the 2018 president of the American Geosciences Institute. She authored 23 patents, 28 scholarly papers, and over 150 other articles. Visit seg.org forward slash podcast for links to learn more about her books and her work. Now for our conversation. How are you doing today? Just fine. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. So are you in home confinement? I I am. I I actually typically work from home, though, so it it hasn't been too big of a switch for me, thankfully. Are you having a big adjustment, having not to be able to leave the house yourself? I think it's more the grocery shopping and the lack of social activities, you know, so it's like going out for a walk and dodging people like mad. And it's really interesting that the different approaches people have when, when you're approaching those that don't bother to move over and just barge down right down the middle of, of a path, even a wide one, making it impossible to get far enough away from them where if they just step to one side. So the, the dynamics of interactions, it's, it's interesting. In a, in a sense, it sort of reminds me of some of this, you know, just the people with the huge senses of entitlement. And I think that that's part of, of what you see woven through this. But I think one of the things about looking back at this as an older person is, you know, you start seeing all of this in terms of a multi-generational transition. That when I look back over history, for a long time, technology was not evolving very fast and roles became very rigid. You know, you had guilds, families, you know, the same profession, father to son to grandson to great grandson, you know, reflected in people's last names, you know, like Miller or Smith or whatever. That's what the family did. And, you know, we've had so much change over the 20th and now the 21st century that it, it creates a lot more negotiation between the parties. And you, you can see it in the differences through organizations. It creates issues, certainly. Well, your book does a very good job of helping people if if they have those negotiations, be it with their business, their manager, with their partner. Uh, I really like how you outline questions to consider and questions to talk about. It's It's a very actionable book. I'd say thank you very much. One of the interesting things was I actually had a whole book manuscript written and I had an agent at that point. 
you know, she found a publisher and they use librarians. Prager uses librarians as their reviewers. And they came back and they said, your audience is all wrong. Your book is not for management. It's for the individuals. And they went, oh, yeah. And it was interesting because I had all the ideas, but it was suddenly flipping them around from trying to inform management in terms of how they should handle the situation to telling the individuals. And so it was fun because suddenly the advice was very different. Mm. One of the sentences that struck me in, in your book was that organizations often cannot change quickly enough for people who are working for them to avoid damaging their career. And it, it kind of strikes me that that is directed at the individuals and not trying to encourage management to change, but maybe the individual needs to make a change themselves. You know, you need to make up your mind in terms of whether or not you want to vote with your feet. And I think that that's one of those things where early in your career, you think you have all this time and and you don't realize that there's this constant clock ticking and that that impacts how people see you. In hindsight, it's almost like in the blink of an eye, you go from being the fresh, young, interesting thing that's being sponsored and helped to being old fish, you know, you know, it's like, get this out of here. It's starting to smell bad. Yeah. It's kind of interesting to think about the classic paradigm. I, I forget who, who wrote the book, but the three options you have is exit voice and loyalty and how in a business space, loyalty may not be really exist anymore on a company level. So you have kind of two options now as an employee exit or voice. And your book is, is a lot about the voice side. So Let's let's jump into it here. One of the important things that your book does, I think, is how it frames this conversation. And it frames women's issues as dual career couple issues. So why did you think it was important to frame this conversation this way? I think it really is an issue about dual career couples. And that makes it important both in terms of the dynamics in the couple and also their engagement with their employers. And part of that is an employer, when they look at a young man who may have a working wife, many of the senior management look at and go like, well, that's fine. But once he gets the right opportunity, he's going to take the lead and off he goes. Whereas they project down on the younger person what happened in their relationship, which is, well, I got this opportunity. And my wife took on volunteer work instead. So I think it's important in that sense of seeing how management looks at it, but also within the couple, because you're a unit. It's like you're a military squad working together against defending the family unit. And yes, you can have frictions in there, but putting it in this context that you're both breadwinners and that times have changed. So the division of labor and the division of responsibility of all sorts needs to be re-examined and renegotiated. Now, looking at some actionable points of your book, you you emphasize in part the work side of the work-life balance, and and that comes up a lot, and we'll we'll have some more conversations about that. But you have some guidance on three key factors in the book, opportunity, flexibility, and documentation of accomplishments. So why these particular factors to, to key in on? Well, I think 
opportunities are what drive changes. You know, it's like, what is the size of the opportunity? Life is about uh, risk reward decisions. So an opportunity is the reward and what risks are you as an individual and you as a couple, your family willing to do for certain opportunities. And a new opportunity can destabilize a stable situation. I think the flexibility is important because, you know, we can think we have a game plan that we've negotiated everything. But as we know, in this time of pandemic, life throws us a lot of surprises. And it's being able to, as they say, roll with the punches, to look at it and say, what do we have to do differently now? And I think that flexibility is a true survival characteristic, whether you're an individual, a family, or uh, an employer. You know, that ability to say, the situation has changed. What do we do differently now? And then documentation of accomplishments, I think, is absolutely essential. And, and particularly for women, because there's long been the issue that a woman may say something, but the idea is not recognized till a man picks it up. Well, the way you can protect that is if you document it, if you write a paper on it, then you've got your name on it. Other people can pick it up and improve it, but you have created that credential for yourself. And that in turbulent times, which a lot of times are turbulent, you know, you want credentials that are transferable, something that means something both within your organization and outside. And therefore, it's very important to be in effect building your CV with documented accomplishments. Yeah, you dedicate a whole chapter on that for people to get some tips on that. And and one of your primary interests is the retention of mid-career women. I haven't seen this discussed too frequently in other places. You know, why this particular interest for you? And what are some of the factors for why women at this mid-career point become not well-represented in the upper ranks of organizations? Well, the reason I focus on that is I've seen so often everyone can say, hi, we're recruiting women, you know, look at us, all this outreach. If you look at the numbers of women that flow in, they're large. The problem is retention. But retention to me means that you have to admit that something is not right. Why are the women leaving? in higher percentages than the men. And so that's a much harder thing to do is to admit that something that an organization is doing is not working. But I think that if we're ever going to fill the pipeline and truly have a robust pipeline all the way through of female talent, we have to patch the holes in the middle of the pipeline, which is retention of mid-career women. And that involves looking at why are women leaving at mid-career? And and you see it across multiple disciplines, multiple companies. And and so to me, that's where we really need to be putting our emphasis. You know, outside of your long career in the industry, 
you're living this with your partner as dual careers, but you've done a lot of very fascinating surveys um, for many years. Could you just explain in part how you've come across so much of this data that you use to inform your book and your thoughts about what we're talking about today? Well, I guess part of it was looking at it at scale that I'm hoping that by saying, you know, this isn't one employer, which company it's always, how do you say it isn't one defective employee? Because when, when you look at one person, you know, a manager can go like, well, there's something wrong with your thinking. And the goal was to collect enough data to try to persuade management that, look, this is what your workforce looks like. This is how the workforce is evolving. And so the way I first got into it was at the point I, I really became engaged in, in the dual career couple issues was after having served as a president of the Society of Petroleum Engineers. And I knew their system and I was involved in their personnel development efforts. And so I worked within them to do multiple rounds of surveys. And for me, doing a survey, it's, it's like a kid in a candy jar. You know, you do one and then immediately you say, oh, dang, I didn't answer the, ask those questions because there's always questions on questions. And so it was finding new ways to reach out and, and get more information. And having the power to ask the question is very important because questions shape conversations. And so to me, it was trying to have data to support what I was bringing to try to convince management of things. And as I found, it was sort of amazing how you could go in with data and still get the same responses. But I think showing that it's bigger than a single person, because if you're going through a lot of these problems, it can be very lonely as an individual. But if you look around and say, gee, I'm not alone. You know, this is typical of a demographic group. And then you can start learning from each other. So to me, knowledge of many forms is power. And surveys can be very useful in, in shaping our understanding of both our own situation and trying to improve the situation. Although, as I said, old ideas and thoughts can be very deeply entrenched, which comes back to the flexibility which is, you know, what are you willing to give up for the opportunity to have something better? Yeah, it, it brings to mind Daniel Kahneman's work about loss aversion, how we're, we're much more, our minds just gravitate more towards losses than to gain. So that's a hard thing to get people wrapped around, I think. You know, drilling down in, into some of those survey results that you had, what were some of the two or three main reasons you were finding that companies were not able to retain these mid-professional women? Well, I, I think it's certainly that they're not advancing. And I think a key issue was willingness to relocate. And then another one was that many companies in their ideas about career paths, once sort of a declaration that the company comes first, that you'll say, transfer me anywhere, anytime, that you don't put any restrictions on where you'll go or what you'll do. And what I realized looking around both at what men were doing and women were doing was that 
many women were actually being very honest about it. You know, they didn't really want to be confronted with these decisions. But men would just leave it totally open. And then when something came up they didn't like, they'd say, no, I won't do that. And then they'd get up finally, you know, after two or three tries, if they were high flyer, they'd get offered what they wanted and zoom right off with no damage to their career. Whereas if you say, you know, here's my very limited set of things I'll do, you don't ever see those opportunities. So the point was, is you don't lay your cards on the table. The company's not laying their cards on the table. You don't lay your cards on the table. You leave it open and negotiate. But life is a continuous series of negotiations. But until you see what the other side's offering, you can't begin to negotiate. So you don't say no, you know, play poker with them. You know, I, I really liked one thing that you brought up in the book about how being part of a dual career couple is a form of invisible diversity. Could you elaborate on what that means and how companies might be able to better utilize that diversity to improve its bottom line? Well, it's truly what the younger workforce looks like. And that if you look at it, a huge fraction of the workforce is composed of dual career couples. But when you look at the top of companies, it's a single breadwinner. I had a good friend who was one of the top officers at Chevron. And she said that of all the top, the top 40, as it were, in a big company, only three of them had a, a working spouse, you know, and in her case, she never had any children. So this is even with no children present, having a working spouse, that the top deck view was that you needed to have a spouse whose job, as it were, was supporting your role in the company. And their ideal was a woman who had a husband playing the old wife role for them. But, but the problem here is that's not what your workforce looks like. And so when you go down and you project this on your workforce, you have a huge culture clash, a huge value clash in terms of what people are dealing with in everyday life for them. And there's a lack of understanding between, in effect, the leaders and, and the workers. And it, their feeling was that as long as they could find people who would fit the old model, that was great. But that means that there's a huge gap in understanding and empathy between the management and the bulk of the employees. Well, what's what's on many people's minds right now is, is the coronavirus, how we opened our conversation. And it's, of course, substantially impacting many in the world right now. And in this industry, the price of oil along with coronavirus as well. And your section on the allegorical story, Who Moved My Cheese, really resonated with me. Could you share this story and how it applies possibly more, or just how maybe people perceive this story possibly differently than it, it could be perceived? Well, I, I think that it's an aspect when I was first exposed to that story was at a time of another severe oil price downturn. You know, when companies were trying to get the employees to recognize that they'd gone from boom times to bust. And for younger employees who've not been through the cycles, it's a shock when suddenly you go from getting 
annual raises, all kinds of perks, nice travel, to hanging on for dear life. You know, going through reorganization after downsizing reorganization. And in this story by Spencer Johnson, so it's an allegorical story by Spencer Johnson, and he's got two indecisive humans who are trying to find food, and the cheese has suddenly vanished, which, of course, is, you know, where did my nice, cozy career go? And, you know, each of them embarking on what they need to do to continue to get food. Well, when I went to management and said, look, your workforce is changing. You don't have the single workforce primarily composed of single dominant breadwinners anymore. The new workforce is overwhelmingly dual career couples. And the response was, well, as long as we can get them in the old mode, we don't need to change. And my view was, you know, you're, you're then continuing to perpetuate a managerial group that lacks empathy for the, uh, many of the issues that are so important for the workforce. So it was the case that this story was presented to me and taught to me during a, an oil downturn with the idea that the workforce had to change because the situation had changed. And with regard to the reshaping of the workforce with women being a major part of it and with even though women's income statistically is still not on par with men it's big enough that it's a huge factor in how in family incomes that uh management had to look at this and say you know the workforce has changed is it really to our benefit to be selecting management from a smaller and smaller fraction that chooses to follow the same lifestyle that current management had. So it, it was flipping it around. But I think in terms of the coronavirus, you know, you're, you're seeing it in the literature that this is going to cause fundamental changes. We don't even appreciate what they are yet. But, you know, when we emerge from this, life is not going to snap back to where it was before. Everybody's not going to instantly be using a lot of oil. All those jobs are not going to instantly start coming back. That people are going to be making a lot of hard decisions. There are going to be huge changes in how, how we work and what we do. So it's tough times, but it's not anything new. One of the hardest things I had was one of the roles I had was being responsible for university recruiting and philanthropy. By the time I was put in the role, I could see that the supply of new graduates had expanded to where it needed to be. And we didn't really need the outreach we were doing. But I was supposed to go out and pump it up and say, this is no longer a cyclical industry. We've solved that problem. And I thought, you know, I can say through good times and bad, you can craft a very rewarding career in, in the oil industry. But that doesn't mean that we've solved the cyclicity. There's a lot of cyclicity for many reasons. You know, if you go back, I sort of feel like I have 
the oil price, the history of the oil price engraved on my brain in terms of how it impacted my life and my career. And it wasn't even so much what the absolute in constant dollars value of the price of oil was. It was whether the price was going up or going down. So these are times when people are going to have to rely on that flexibility. and, And while they're quarantined, brush up their resumes and think about their alternatives. And this is the time to really carve out time for strategic thinking and seriously think about what your priorities are because your priorities change and financial and emotional jolts like this one will definitely change your priorities. And you need to know those because when you know your priorities, you can make snap decisions. When you don't know your priorities it is when you know, you're befuddled. So you need to take advantage of an effect this time to prepare yourself for what comes ahead. Well, well, speaking of priorities, something you had mentioned in that response, you know, with the continued persistence of the gender equity pay gap that we have, you know, one thing that dual career couples might have a hard time figuring out is whose career should take precedence. So how would you recommend a couple navigate how they might decide what career should take precedence and, and how to go about figuring out that priority? But I don't think it's any one point in time because life changes. And so it's about thinking, what are the opportunities on the table? And as a couple, you want to see the opportunities. And that's the aspect of not sharing any more information with your employer than you have to, because you want to see what will be offered. Because until you have an offer on the table, you don't know what you're willing to sacrifice as an individual or as as a couple for the right opportunity. Are you willing to temporarily live apart? Are you willing to go to a location that you normally would not find desirable? That's where a lot of this is negotiation between the couple and also soul searching in, in terms of really understanding yourself and understanding yourself as a couple and recognizing that your priorities change with time can depend upon all kinds of family situations. What's most important to you? You know, age of your kids, health, other responsibilities. So it's a case of saying priorities change with time and this is an ongoing negotiation and it can flip back and forth. And by documenting things and and being strategic, how do you keep both people happy with their careers and what they're doing? It really does go back to those three points you you mentioned that we talked about at the front end there. And I want to dig in a little bit on this work-life balance question here. It kind of really entered my consciousness and and many in the public when Anne-Marie Slaughter wrote in The Atlantic, Why Women Still Can't Have It All. And in your book, you talk about how dual career couples could be eliminated early on from promotions for not being able to work really long hours, or as you just mentioned, maybe not being able to relocate frequently. But you know, one thing that I've been thinking about is this assumption of companies to succeed on the job that you need these long hours. You know, a business in New Zealand did this two-month experiment for four-day work weeks with full pay, 
and found no reduction in the job performance and reduced stress and better work-life balance. You know, I know of several companies that the full-time work week is 35 hours. You know, one of my favorite companies, Basecamp, they have summer hours where they work four days a week during the summer, allow a month sabbatical every three years. And while I don't have many friends and family within the oil and gas industry, you know, it just has occurred to me, why is a 40-hour work week, you know, it doesn't make much sense in the knowledge economy. So is it time, I guess all that to say, is it time to rethink the work week, especially as it's related, as you said, you know, majority of people now in the workforce are dual career couples. So is it time to kind of rethink how we do this Monday to Friday, nine to five thing? I think it is. And I think we're going to see a lot of it, you know, because suddenly you had so much telecommuting, you know, because the other thing you had also was managers who, you know, part of it was like surveying their estate, walking around and lording it out over all their employees and making sure they were at those desks for that time. You know, and actually the 40-hour work week didn't always exist. You know, there were times when companies in effect expected people to show up on Saturdays. The jokes about people in effect figuring out ways to do their own thing while appearing to be working. We also know that a lot of time in the office is spent on socialization of various kinds, you know, the proverbial water cooler conversation. So there's definitely productivity versus performance. You know, originally, you know, the original way people got compensated was they were compensated for performance, you know, which is here's a work product one way or another. That's what you get paid for. You know, that's what, in effect, sole entrepreneurs, you know, a solo professional is paid on their performance. And so people may say, you know, I'd rather get paid for my performance than, in effect, hours served. And it it may actually work out better for the corporations. It's easier for a large corporation to, in effect, pay for X amount of time from so many people than to, you know, negotiate all those detailed deliverables from individuals. But that's something that certainly consultants have negotiated with employers for a long time. You know, the people who opt to be a consultant, that they make their own hours and deliver a work product. So again, it's, it's a trade-off. You know, do people want to be paid for time served Or would they rather, in effect, guarantee a deliverable? And and from an employer's perspective, if they discover that they can get by, you know, with telecommuting, they may start going more towards a deliverables type aspect, which, you know, probably works to some extent better for experienced professionals and then raises the issue of how do you train the incoming? workforce. But I think there's lots of room here for renegotiation. Every cloud has its silver lining. And I think that we're not going to go back to the way we were before and that this will have major implications. I hope so. And in some positive ways as as well there. Um, You know, unconscious bias is a particularly pernicious form of bias that women especially face in the workplace. And you share a short vignette by Susan Clancy, who is an experimental psychologist that highlights just how difficult overcoming unconscious bias can be. Could you share this vignette and share a few ways managers could work 
to overcome their unconscious bias? What this was is something where her little story is a boy and his father are involved in a car accident. The father is killed, but the boy is taken to the hospital and into surgery. Upon seeing him, the surgeon says, I can't operate on this boy because he's my son. And it's at that point that I realized that my initial mental image of the surgeon was as a man. And that we tend to have these instant images with gender associated with them. So when people are looking for who to promote, there's, as we know, a very strong tendency to promote in their own image, in effect, find a junior clone of themselves. But the the aspect that we all do it, we all make these assumptions constantly. Life is full of assumptions and that we need to challenge ourselves on these things and, and to recognize that diversity, you know, there's a lot of verbiage on it, but people from different backgrounds do see different solutions, which is why if you can level the playing field so that the people truly hear each other and, and collaborate, you end up with much more robust solutions. You know, I think the hardest story to read in your book related to your own experience of workplace bullying, could you define how you see workplace bullying and how it can proliferate at a company? Yeah, I I think there's definitely an issue in corporate culture in terms of what is tolerated. It can be widely recognized it's going on, and, and yet it's tolerated within the company. And I think there really needs to be zero tolerance for that. To me, a a bully, when you look back at it, and and it's tough because breaking a cycle of bullying is extremely difficult. And it, it creates kind of a downward psychological spiral on the person who is being bullied, is that the bully is basically an insecure person who sees the person that they bully. As, as a threat in some way, and to eliminate them as a, as a threat works to discredit and destabilize them mentally. So many people, it's the old thing. Other people in the organization may see this, but they don't want to get involved. They're fearful. You know, it's like, it's not my problem. I'm not getting involved in this. But I think the most important thing when you're being bullied is to find confidence to find people who can help you psychologically and also help you find a way to break the cycle and get out of it. You know, and that may mean changing jobs. It definitely means getting away from the bully one way or another. I have found, you know, one of the sad things is that if someone deep in their soul is insecure and thinks that they got their role as a token, they see anyone else similar with potential as a threat to them. And that's where you get some of these very nasty workplace bullying things going on. And I I saw that, you know, when I was researching this and reading it, it was like, oh, you know, but the only way to break the cycle is to change employers. And I found it didn't take that. It just took 
getting away from that manager. Yeah, I like how, what you said in, in the book was when you were able to understand it as bullying, it kind of helped you place that and understand it. And I, I kind of thought about that with me too, how I've seen with so many women in my life and just reading so many stories, how now that they can place what that sexual harassment was, they can now begin to process it and understand it differently. And I think that's one reason why you're, you started to hear so many stories coming up all of a sudden, because now there was a way to label and understand what that was that at the time you just didn't have and how powerful being able to understand and label something like that can really be for processing and, and being able to move forward. Well, and I think reading about it, too, because when I was being bullied, one of the things was when I got into the bullying literature. And there's a, a lot of very good stuff written on bullying in the workplace. I don't agree with all of it. But I think in any of this, it's that you're not alone. It's it's not that you're defective. It's more that the, the bully, the aggressor, is the defective person. and you, And you certainly can see it in something like Weinstein in, in that, you know, the stuff that came out in the trial, that the guy was defective in, in, in many ways. And so you had these individuals who are not comfortable with themselves. And so, you know, they, they turn into uh, aggressors and, and bullies. And I think that that certainly happens in companies too, where it's, it's not the secure people who do it. And so, my feeling was, if you find yourself working with somebody who's insecure, get away from them as fast as you can. You know, you want to work for people who are, are confident and don't see you as a threat. And, and that's true in terms of all sorts of things. You know, the best work experiences I've had have been on very powerful teams where everyone all had very different contributions. But none of us felt threatened by each other, you know, that we were truly bringing, you know, the diversity in, in this case of technical background, perspective and experience together to solve problems. But it, insecure people are, are what you really want to avoid. Well, that is uh, certainly easier said than done, uh, but definitely enabling people to do their best work at a job when you find that, definitely hold on to that because I, I think that is sadly more rare than it should be. Kind of flipping gears uh, quite a bit as we wrap up here. You know, you mentioned that you were president of the Society of Petroleum Engineers and, you know, professional societies have played an important role throughout your career. So you could just, could you just briefly showcase, you know, what role these societies played in helping you succeed in your career and, and do this work that you're doing now? Well, I think going back to the, you know, one of my original points, which is documenting what you can do is professional societies play a huge role in job security. And, you know, particularly in a time like this, and that there are two immediate key things they do. One is they let you publicly share your work to show your expertise. And it's not that companies make this easy for you to do. Early in my career, I mean, I would rack my brains for ways to be allowed to publish things. And actually talking about surveys and things, 
uh, before I got into the issue of doing surveys on, you know, soft issues to do with people, I did a lot uh, through professional societies. I organized group studies that where it was a shared pool of data with the understanding comparing different how different laboratories measured the same thing and this it turned out got quite different results where I knew going into it that the project would yield a publication. And so it was a way of how can I main, maintain my professional visibility and what goes along with maintaining that professional visibility is you're creating a network beyond your current employer. When everything's going fine and it's happy days are here again, people can feel nice and secure within a single employer. It's like my career is going well, you know, I've got no worries. Why should I invest my own time in a lot of evening and weekend work? And it's because business cycles are inevitable. Stuff happens. And, you know, when you work with people in a professional society, they know you. You are a, a true colleague of theirs. And so you have a much bigger network that when time comes and you need to find a job, you're not just, you know, a random inquiry coming to them. You're a person. They know your work ethic. They know what you can do. They know what you're like as a person. And that's, it's through those connections that you find jobs. You know, the best jobs, even in good times, are not advertised. They're found through these networks. People goes, oh, I know that person can do it. I, I got involved in professional societies trying to maintain my professional reputation. I didn't really think, you know, about rising through the organizations. They have just truly shaped my career and my life and, and been, you know, some of the, the strongest, best friendships I have are with people I've met through professional organizations. Well, for my, my last question, that's a great bit on opportunity there. We've talked about flexibility, documentation of accomplishments. I just, as we, we leave our audience here, if there's one thing outside of, of those three key factors and, and other things that we've talked about today, you know, what would you say, you know, encourage someone who, you know, maybe there is a woman in a, at a company and she just knows she's nervous about getting promoted, looking around, you know, what advice, what well, one piece of advice would you provide someone today that they could, could do right now as maybe they are working from home and have a little bit more time? What would you encourage them to do today to get started to maybe change their current circumstance? Well, one of the most useful things I ever saw was never ask somebody for a job, ask them for advice. Because most people don't immediately think, oh, I have this job I can offer someone. But everyone can offer advice. And so when you get a dialogue going, you get somebody engaged in helping you. And so during this time, reaching out and starting conversations with people is, is the best way to start opening doors. So don't ask for something other than advice, and then explore and see where it goes. 
because this is a huge disruption. And in every disruption, there's opportunity and risk. And so it's like, get out of your shell, reach out to people. People have, in effect, more time and they're craving interaction more now than normally. And, and so it's a perfect time now before people come out of quarantine to reach out. I've actually been spending a huge amount of time in Zoom calls. Uh, Maria Angela Capello, who's very active in SEG, I'm uh, co-authoring a book with her. She's in Kuwait and I'm in California. And we have been working back and forth fast and furiously. So it's a, per- a perfect time to reach out to other people and start these conversations. And we, fortunately, with modern technology, we can do it. I've lost track of how many calls I've had in the last few weeks between California and Kuwait. And that's certainly a difficult time difference. Yeah, yes, it is. Well, I really appreciate your time and insight staying a, a bit longer than we initially expected here. Thank you for this uh, very interesting book and, and helpful book to many people and, and for your time today again. Well, thank you, Andrew. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about this. And as I said, you know, in this difficult time, I really encourage people to reach out and communicate with other people because, you know, we all need that human contact. And fortunately, even though we're, you know, physically isolated, thanks to modern technology, we can do it. And these changes will be lasting. And the time to start making connections and looking to the future is now. Thank you for listening to SEG's flagship podcast. Please share this episode with a friend, colleague, or manager that would enjoy hearing this episode. Your recommendation is the single best action you can take on behalf of SEG's podcast. Go to our website at seg.org forward slash podcast to find all our episodes and learn how you can listen to this podcast directly on your phone without downloading an app. Original music by Zach Bridges. This episode was hosted, edited, and produced by me, Andrew Gary. The SEG podcast team is Jennifer Crockett, Allie McGinnis, and Mick Sweeney. Thank you for listening. This is Seismic Sound Off, signaling off.